This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the And Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Winnie City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's good, Chris? Oh, everything. Everything indeed. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. The the audience might notice that I got a slight cold, so stick with me. You know, throughout uh, COVID and all that, I almost forgot that people get other things, other ailments like colds and the flu and stuff like that. So not doing too bad, but it'll affect my voice a little bit. Hopefully they can deal with it. But something that's really been on my heart that I wanted to talk about this episode, um, and it's really, you know, it's really devastating to me, is um, it deals with the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, and we bring them up from time to time. But as of right now, as I understand it, they're not even going to make the play in, let alone the playoff. Um, and so they may, you know, that may change. But the bigger thing to me is just how they've given up. They've given up on their leadership. I think that a week or so ago, they gave up like 80 some 80 plus points in one half, which was the most points they've given up in since like 1950s or something crazy. And um, it's just sad to see, you know, the mighty fall in that way. Uh, everywhere I go, there always seems to be somebody who points out, you know, that listens to the show and points out that they're a Laker fan. And I just want to let them know that um, I'm with you in spirit. Um, I'm sending positive vibes your way. I won't say that I'm praying for you, but I am sending positive vibes your way. Not that that's going to do anything for you, but uh, hopefully that's some solace to you in this this very dark moment for the Laker Nation. Any thoughts on that, Chris? Hey, man, I'm I'm all in on Laker uh, on Laker hate, but uh, I also have my own bulls in mind. Uh, so I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be Tread like uh, some some good basketball karma here by taking it easy on Laker fans right now until Tread my bull lightly. can turn it around. <laughs> it sounds like you're in a glass house, and, and so I think that your posture <laughs> is is wise in that regard. Your posture is wise in that regard, brother. But we yeah, we man. as usual have a whole lot to talk to talk about. So let me first get into saying, as always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Again, we got that great leadership academy that we're uh, partnering with them on and uh, things are about to go really well with that. I'm excited about it. But let's get into this these conversations. So as, as usual, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Now, Chris, as you and everybody listening today probably knows, there was a lot of drama surrounding the Senate confirmation hearing of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. We had senators like Josh Hawley and the ever shameless Ted Cruz using this very important hearing, this historic hearing to score ideological points and to get the to get on the next episode of Tucker Carlson. You know how they do. Uh, and also, uh, I'd have to say that some of the questioning from Democrats uh, was theatrical as well and really aimed at going viral. Now, I know a lot of my friends retweeted this and a lot of people liked the commentary of Cory Booker. But if we're going to be honest and we're going to be fair, even though it was more positive commentary, that was still somewhat performative, too, even if you like the message. I mean, Booker isn't new to this kind of stuff. Uh, if we go back a little further, you'll recall that Senator Booker said that his questioning of Justice Kavanaugh, his turn to go, was his Spartacus moment. If that ain't entertainment, I don't know what is. But listen, the purpose of the Senate Judiciary hearings uh, for these nominations is to ask questions that get to the qualifications. 
to get to the judgment and get to the philosophy of the nominee. And so the gotcha questions that we heard from Republicans, the theatrical gushing over the nominee uh, that we heard from Democrats, whether you like it or not, really doesn't further the purpose of the hearing, uh, even if it makes good social media fodder. Uh, and I do want the, the the audience to understand that. But one constructive moment that came out of these hearings was a statement by Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska about the effect of cameras inside the hearing. You see, they didn't always show the hearings on live stream television. Uh, and then he he made the 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 good point, I think, that um, cameras change people's behavior. And so these folks are acting differently because the camera's on. The hearing probably uh, would be pretty dull. It'd be pretty down to business if folks like Ted Cruz didn't think it provided them with an opportunity to show out in front of the camera for the base. It has an impact on what they do and what they say and how they treat the nominee. And I think that's unfortunate. Now, I've heard elected officials, Chris, and I've heard commentators say that uh, certain politicians interact with each other and they interact with outsiders differently when no cameras are around because there's no incentive to put on a show. But when you put in that incentive to put on the show, that's what they're going to do. And so I still maintain and I tweeted about this, too. I maintain that the transparency provided by the live video stream is minimal and really overshadowed by the damage that it does to the process and to the discourse. Uh, it's a distraction. I think that ac access to transcripts and maybe even audio would be sufficient. I do not think that those mediums are actually any less transparent than the video stream in this context, because the representatives are the ones that are going to be voting on the nomination anyway. And if you really want to hear what happened, you can listen to it or you can go read it. The live stream just provides more entertainment. But I understand a lot of people are in it for the entertainment. But, Chris, this se this segment isn't even about the hearing. Right. Uh, it's about something that happened after the hearing, uh, after Ben Sass spoke respectfully to Judge Jackson and said she was qualified. He then voted against her in committee because of differences in judicial philosophy. That's how he put it. And I mean, those who watch this and keep up with his judicial philosophy know that those differences are real. OK, but I still disagree with that vote. Uh, and I think it could. I don't know, partially be a product of the partisan polarization. Sass may have been making a calculation. He may he might not want to get primaried by the base. Over a foregone conclusion, he figures she's going to get voted in anyway. I'm not going to take on this battle. Who knows? I'm, I'm just speculating. But I do want folks to keep in mind, because a lot of folks made a big deal of this. Keep in mind that all the Democrats voted against Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who was who was well qualified as well. Right. Um, and even uh, the the affable uh, Cory Booker had some negative things to say in that hearing. Right. So the sides just switch based on who's actually who's nominee it is, I should say, what, what party nominated the person. Now, again, I dislike this polarization. I dislike that vote, Chris. But after Sass's vote, a lot of progressive commentators tweeted out about the seeming duplicity between his statement about her and her qualifications and how he voted. And I get that. I understand where people are coming from. Uh, but I think some people are saying it's as if his respectful tone and treatment of her meant nothing unless he voted for her. And, and I wouldn't go that far. I would say to be respectful is something in itself. I think he should have voted for her, but that doesn't take away. That doesn't mean that his respectfulness didn't mean anything. Right. Um, I got several texts from friends, you know, when when uh, kind of sharing those tweets with me, understandably, because I, the Ann campaign actually shared uh, Sass's statement on social media. Uh, and so folks were kind of responding to that to say, man, look what Sass is doing. And to be honest, Chris, I think the message behind some of these progressive tweets uh, and the folks, you know, kind of the progressive commentators that were putting that out there, I think the message that they wanted to send to their audience was this. I think they wanted to send the message that they're all the same. They're all the same. Don't be fooled by uh, by Sass's respectful posturing. He's really no different than Senator Cruz or Senator Hawley. And and we have to be we have to be careful with this because the they're all the same message is one that I believe that Christians should deliberately not buy into. 
Our ideological tribes, Chris, are continually telling us that they, whoever they are on the other side, are all the same. We hear that message over and over again. Don't be tricked into trusting them. Don't be tricked into engaging, into giving them credit or into supporting them in any way. Because they're all evil. They're all they all have the same motivations. They're always going to come to the same conclusions. They as a whole must be condemned in every circumstance unconditionally. That's the message that we get from our ideological tribes. Now, I heard this message again. We get it all the time. I heard this message even after the Georgia governor, uh, Kemp, the lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan and the secretary of uh, state, Brad Raffensperger, said no to helping Trump with the big lie. One of the first things that you heard from Democratic messaging sources was don't give them any credit. Right. This might have been the right thing, but we might not even mention that. But remember the other stuff that they did wrong. And the thing is, like, to give somebody credit for having a little more integrity or having more integrity than Trump or some other folks doesn't mean that you support everything they do. But it does mean that you're saying, hey, there is a difference. There's a distinction here. And I made a statement about removing the cameras from the hearings. I made a tweet about that really before I even uh, saw Sass, what Sass said. And I and I said it for the and I said what I said for the aforementioned reasons that I just stated. And guess what happens? A conservative sister, without knowing anything about me, obviously, uh, said that I wouldn't have been saying what I said during the Kavanaugh or, or, or Barrett hearings, that I didn't have a problem with how those two were treated or, or the cameras during those situations. And anybody who's been listening to this podcast for a while knows I had something to say about those hearings. I've mentioned before uh, the, the whole Spartacus moment uh, conversation. I've always critiqued that that stuff. But guess what? It didn't matter. Because we're all the same, right? I say something that you don't necessarily like. I must be all the same as every other progressive that has something to say. Jackie Hill Perry shares a photo of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson on Twitter and gets attacked as being unbiblical, pro-abortion, and supporting someone who condones child molestation. Now, Jackie Hill Perry, who, who's a friend, um, this sister just wrote a book on holiness. A great book on holiness goes throughout the country talking about holiness and talking about the Christian sexual ethic and getting canceled by uh, uh, folks at Ivy League schools and all this stuff. Yet she makes that she shows a picture of Judge uh, Jackson and her daughter. And now she's not biblical. Now she's a heretic and all this other stuff. Because at that point, guess what? The details don't matter. We're all just the same. We got to be careful with this. Even when you disagree with a party or ideology deeply, do not go along with this. They're all the same narrative. Because what you do when you do that is you flatten reality and you dehumanize people. When you say an entire group is all the same and you don't put any distinction between individuals, especially between their actions, when their actions are very different. When you just say none of them can be trusted, none of them should ever get any credit. Don't ever give them credit. And what we do when we say that is we make it easy for the custodians of our culture, the ones who tell us what to believe. We make it easier for them to convince us of foolishness because we stop listening and we stop thinking critically. This is part of the reason that black Christians and white Christians only communicate through intermediaries on social media and in the mainstream media instead of communicating directly to one another. We think we already know what the other one thinks because they're all the same. Believing they're all the same narrative makes us partial. Chris, it makes us hard hearted. I believe that it's a symptom of a fruit of the spirit deficiency. Innocent people have gone to jail and many other tragedies have occurred because some folks truly believed that narrative and didn't look at the specific case in front of them. We've assumed too much and we've drawn some terrible conclusions based on this lazy way of seeing others. Jesus did not treat people that way. Whether it was uh, Matthew, uh, the tax collector, whether it was the woman at the well, Nicodemus, the Pharisee or the adulterous woman and so on. 
Jesus heard the individual's testimonies and wanted to get to know their hearts. We will never take the time to find out what's really in an individual's heart and love them if we assume that they're all the same. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, deals with a lot of things um, that are very important, I think, in uh, in our current discourse. Um, you know, first off, I do want to say just about cameras in the uh, in the Senate hearings. Um, I do think that we need to at least look at that because you want certain spaces in society to be serious um, and to not be quite so performative. And when you put the cameras in, it does incentivize performance uh, in an environment that you, that you do want to be uh, serious. And so I do appreciate um, Senator Sass's comments. I appreciate that, that we shared those comments. Um, his his vote notwithstanding, uh, you know, I, I think when it comes to you know voting for Supreme Court justices and appointees, there there has to be a conversation. We're not having the conversation today about what advice and consent means and looks like, um, and that's a, a a different conversation for a, a different time. Uh, but the performative nature of the uh, of the questioning, I think, could be aided by removing some of the incentives. Uh, for that type of performance um, in in these spaces and in these moments that should be uh, serious. Uh, but when it comes to grouping folks all together, I, I think you have uh, identified something that is very hard for us uh, right now in the culture um, because we are so divided. Um, th- there's a sense in which when you identify with a group, you are trying to make certain things about yourself easy to identify, right? So when I join the membership of a Bible-believing church, uh, I do portray at some level that I also believe the Bible, and that's why I want to be a part of the group. Uh, but the there's a, 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 a significant and an important difference between commonality and sameness, right? Uh, and when you conflate the idea of commonality with the idea of sameness, you get this flattened reality uh, and the sort of bifurcated political discourse where in folks who, you know, fall into certain categories don't get a hearing, don't get to uh, be different. And not only does it weaken the broader discourse, it actually weakens both groups, right? Because what it does is gives the the most extreme factions inside of a, partic- a particular group control in that group, right? Because, you know, I hear it every day, uh, you know, somebody comes and say, oh, well, if you believe in uh, pro-life and school choice, then you're not a Democrat. And, and that makes it, I guess, easy for, you know, people to, 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 to process maybe. Um, but I think it's much better, uh, for the discourse, uh, if we allow for individuals to have ideas that depart in certain ways from their group, from their party, from their tribe. That's better for our discourse. And I think it's it's better for any group, party, you know, sort of ideological tribe, even like civic groups and uh, down to like family. Right. Like it is it's, it's not saying that every dissenting opinion is correct, because sometimes dissenting opinions are wrong and, and need to be corrected. But it usually strengthens groups and and the thinking that you have within the group to have to deal with um, consenting ideas. And when we do this, everybody in the group has to be the same. It, it makes it easy for the group, the party, the tribe, to not confront dissenting ideas, but just expel the person with the, the dissenting idea. Um, because if you're not exactly like us, then you cannot be 
a part of us. And so we are severely weakening the sort of strength of association, accountability, and discourse, uh, which are all things that actually make democracy work and make democratic nations strong. And and so, I, you know, I, I think it's something that is very, very important that we deal with. That's why I don't mind talking about it. I talk about it here on the podcast. I talk about it in so many places because I really believe that it is the political issue of our time. Uh, I think that moderation is prophetic and and reasonableness is revolutionary. And we need we need that in our culture, like the, the people who I think are stepping up to to save our our democracy and our discourse in this in this time of our history are the ones who are out here calling uh, for this sort of deeper and more critical thinking, moderation and reasonableness and how we approach. Man, you, you hit on some r- really good stuff. Um, number one, a good point that it's interesting tension and dynamic because the parties themselves internally try to put everybody in one box so they can control it more easily. Right. That's why you don't want a pro life Democrat right in in the party to, to, to uh, mess things up. But they do the same thing to the other side. Right. They try to put them all in one box and say, don't pay attention to them. Even if they do some good. Look, at the end of the day, they're all the same. Right. So even though uh, Sass's posture was completely different and how he dealt with that, even though he got censured by, you know, his state party for not going along with Trump, you know, in 2020, they're all the same. And I just want to point out to people that see those tweets, don't buy into that. Even if he didn't do everything you wanted him to do, even if you still disagree with him, that doesn't mean that they're all the same. And those distinctions, those those differences in opinion and posture matter. And maybe when more people recognize the differences of people on the other side, they can support them and give them incentive to be even more different because it is difficult sometimes. Right. Uh, And and that's what I want to get to. But but here's one of the things that I try to do, because it's stuff for me. I got to catch myself. Right. Like, I think we all have to catch ourselves with the man. You know how they do. Right. Um, But one of the things I try to do is I've made it a habit to deliberately try to find leaders on the other side to pay attention to. And to give the benefit of the doubt to when I can. Now, I'm not going to be unreasonable about it. I'm going to stretch too hard. But I look for those opportunities. Right. And I bring those good examples uh, of folks on the other side to my friends that are progressives and to my friends that are conservatives. Hey, look at this guy. Look at his policy. Sometimes they let me down. You know what I mean? But I do think we have to be proactive about seeking to find allies on the other side of the aisle, seeking to find people who are trying to do it right, even if they don't do everything the way that we can do it. And understanding that partisans are going to take that that difference, that disagreement and expand it and flatten everything else to make us believe that they're all the same. We got to make that effort, man. And so I've always looked for folks. Okay, let me look at what their policy really says, because they'll tell you all their policies the same. Have you read their policy papers? All their policies on either side are not the same. Everything they say is not is not exactly the same. So we have to do that. And again, even even if you disagree with them both, you can't you got to be able to tell the substantive differences. Right. You need to be able to tell the substantive differences between Ben Sass's philosophy and Ted Cruz. If you can't tell the difference, that's a problem because those are two very different people and they approach things very differently. If you can't tell the difference between Val Demings and Senator uh, Mazi Hirono, then again, that's troubling because they approach, even though they're both Democrats, they approach things very differently with different levels of integrity, with different levels of seriousness. We need to be able to recognize those differences, even if there's disagreement, because they're not all the same. Take us out, Chris. Yeah, and I, I would just say that those those distinctions and differences uh, are often where Things happen, like things actually get done that allow government to um, to do things, uh, you know, in certain cases to stop doing things uh, that it need not be doing. But any sort of uh, movement agreement um, that you want to see often happens when you can find those uh, those distinctions and get stuff done. And, and I know that, like, because the control that. Uh, this sort of bifurcated and flattened narrative has in our culture right now, 
the concept of bipartisanship is almost like a dirty word. Uh, but I even think that is is fed by this concept or this idea that there are only two types of people in politics, right? And so Ben Sass has to be exactly the same as Ted Cruz, and both of them are exactly the same as Donald Trump because they are all just the same. Uh, and, you know, that's actually a pretty uh, – I'm just going to say, like, it's a fairly unintelligent approach uh, to discourse and and politics. And it's unhelpful for everybody except for those who already have power and are seeking to uh, maintain it and control uh, the conversation. It's lazy. They benefit when we're lazy. Let's just end by saying they're not all the same in politics, in life, in interpersonal relationships. They, whoever they are are not all the same. We'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, unless you've been under a rock, you know that there is a war going on. Uh, between Ukraine and Russia. Um, And unfortunately, Chris, and this is my opinion, President Joe Biden has made some potentially dangerous gaffes in relation to that war. Now, the U.S. is supposed to be steering clear of anything that might escalate that conflict. Biden has already said that the U.S. has no intention into going into this war. Now, we know Russia has nuclear weapons and we like to help Ukraine uh, and protect, help protect them without going all the way into war. That's not something that we're interested in doing. Uh, There was an article in The Atlantic that has noticed some some similar things. It said that uh, uh, Joe Biden has been a model of restraint during the most uh, serious global crisis in nearly 60 years. He has resisted calls to engage uh, in high-risk escalatory moves, such as a no-fly zone, while inflicting damage on the Russian economy and making clear the depth of America's outrage at Vladimir Putin's war of conquest. But Biden broke his long streak of message discipline during a speech in Poland uh, when he added an apparent an apparently unscripted ending to a speech where he said, for God's sakes, this man, meeting Putin, cannot remain in power. Um. That's that's a problem. First of all, knowing what type of speaker Biden is, he shouldn't be going off script when it comes to stuff like this, because when he goes off script, there's no telling what he might say. Sometimes it's endearing. Sometimes it's dangerous to say that this man must be removed from from power, cannot remain in power means that you're advocating for, for removing him from power, which means he can go back to his country and say, hey, see what the U.S. is trying to do? They're, the West is out to get me. They're out to get us. They're trying to remove me. That's a message that we never wanted to put out there. So adding that to a speech where it wasn't written in and you're, and the administration was surprised he said it, in this situation is, is very bad, man. Um, but it wasn't only that, Chris. He also said something to the effect that the military, to, he was talking to some military folks, and he said um, he talked about them being in Ukraine. Like when you're in Ukraine, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. It's like, no, they're not supposed to be in Ukraine. They're not supposed to be going there or thinking about going there. Why? Why is this being said in public? And then number three, he said something about training troops in Poland, that they were training troops in Poland, which has never been made public before. So you have someone who's shown restraint, who I think has handled this fairly well until he makes three gaffes in a completely avoidable way. You don't just start ad-libbing on something that's that's this serious. And I'll be I'll be honest, the administration as a whole within the last month, and this includes the vice president, have made some statements that either were completely unclear or, again, 
cross the line into being something that can escalate a conflict that doesn't need to be escalated. You got to be more careful. You got to watch what you say. We can't go into these situations. And again, just ad lib. People's lives are on the line. The world is watching what you're saying. So when we go to Poland, when we go to other places and we either don't answer questions clearly. And that happened a couple of times with the vice president. I'm sorry to say it. Or we make these gaffes that have implications of us getting deeper into this war or saying more than we need to say about who should be in power in Russia. We put a lot of people's lives in danger and we raise the stakes in a way that they don't need to be raised. Chris, I'm going to hand it off to you. Yeah, I mean, it it is quite unfortunate uh, to see the president of the United States making those types of, of gaffes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm certain that it's an incredibly challenging job. Uh, I am certain that this is an incredibly challenging time to be in that incredibly challenging job. Uh, but it is the job that the, that the president of the United States uh, signed up for, uh, you know, to take on the job and you, you need clarity. Um, from the administration, you need clarity from the president of the United States about what uh, what the direction is, uh, what the goals are, uh, what we're doing. Uh, you know, you can't have the president of the United States go out and say something, and then the president and the administration then spend the next week saying, "Well, uh, that's what he said, but that's not really the the policy of the United States, uh, the foreign policy." Is the president of the United States what you say becomes the policy? Uh, of the United States. Um, and so in, in a moment like this, with so much on the line, very, very difficult things, uh, you have a conflict uh, that does involve um, a nuclear power, and that is a consideration. You have a kind of hot conflict on the European continent, that is, um, you know, it does call up for folks who are students of history some pretty terrible times. And so uh, in, in these difficult times, the one thing that you do not need um, is a lack of clarity. And so I, I try to have as much grace and, and understanding um, because, you know, I've never been president of the United States. It's, it's got to be. A, a tough job to have. But when you sign up for that job and you get that job in moments like these, you really would rather see clarity and, and really stepping up uh, to this, to this moment. And so I would, I am actually praying for uh, the president uh, in this time that one that he can, have with his administration and his advisors uh, a wise strategy um, and then that he can articulate and execute that strategy in clear, precise and on target sort of ways. Um, you know, because one of the things I guess that is maybe the thing for me that is most troubling uh, about this stretch of statements is, is that it might actually be um, sort of a tip of the hand of what's actually been considered uh, in the inner circles and that there actually is thought of regime change uh, in Russia, which, you know, that's a little terrifying. Especially when you're giving away strategy, like the Poland comment, like nobody, that was never made public. Why are we talking about that? That's, that's a problem. Yeah. To, to your point, to, to, to have some charity, Gaffs happen. I know gaffs happen. I've had gaffs on this. Uh, I've had gaffs on this show. It's it's tough. He has a tough job. But as you said, in those moments, when you have written the stuff, what you're supposed to say is written out for you. It's really about discipline, right? It's about the discipline of just saying what's on the card and moving forward because the it's the implications are too great. I don't even believe you know. There's no one person that should even write. Uh, a statement like that without having other people take a look at it to make sure that they didn't miss something or have a blind spot or say something that or come across in ways they didn't mean. 
So to your point, I think we should all be praying for uh, President Biden, uh, for clarity of mind, uh, for a concision of speech as he goes out and, and has these conversations, because we have to do better than that. Um, hopefully it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like as of right now that Russia has responded to it in, in uh, a completely negative way or that's impacted their strategy. Who knows? But man, that that can't happen again. I understand that he came out and he denied all of it. He said that, you know, he was actually expressing his moral um, kind of disgust with what was going on. We, we don't have time for that. You can you can express that another way. You know, you can do that a different time. We need to know what you say is policy. Um, and they're and people are going to take it that way and they're going to you know, they're going to deduct from what you say and come to conclusions as they should, as we do when yeah. we listen to what Putin has to say. The world That's is right. watching. I, be more careful, bro. Yeah, I, I, I think to your point, like you can express your, you know, just human outrage at another time. I think that other time is when you are not when you're no longer serving as the president of the United States. Right. Um like the speech was written, don't express your just your human outrage or, or whatever that is. And I know that those that he is human and I pray that he has outlets for that human outrage. But uh, the policy speech is not the place to express uh, moral outrage when you're the president of the United States. You know, if, if you want to express moral outrage, get a podcast <laughs> You know, and, and you can come here podcast and express your moral outrage. Uh, when you're president of the United States, what you say is is doctrine. Mm-hmm. So you can't just express you know, freely your moral outrage. That's real. And I'm going to say this. The administration as a whole has to step up. Folks were mad at Trump when he went out there and looked unprepared and said stuff he wasn't supposed to say. You need to be outraged with what the administration has been doing for the last month, because both the president and the vice president have been put in situations where either they just choked in the moment or they just weren't prepared or, or undisciplined. And there's no two ways about it. I can't I can't make no excuse for that. That Listen, the stakes are too high for me to sit here and act like they didn't do it or that it wasn't as bad as what Trump was doing. It's been bad. It's been it really been bad. bad. But take us out. And I didn't. I, I I don't say this to compare pastoring, you know, a church of 250 people in present the United States. Uh, but I think people who lead in any type of organization, right? Like Justin as the leader of the and campaign, if you go on Twitter and like say that the and campaign, you know, think something or is moving in a particular direction, there is no reason for anybody to assume anything other than that is what the end campaign is doing, because that's what the leader just said. Um, and, you know, as a pastor, you know, there are things that you might, uh, it might be your opinion. It might be something uh, that you're dealing with uh, folks and in individual basis, but you don't get up and say it over the pulpit, um, you know, to, express your outrage or concern or anything like that because when you say it from that place and from your position it becomes not just a private concern uh it becomes the concern of the church this is what the intercessors need to pray about the the elders need to meet and discuss it um because you're the leader and you're discussing it uh and so while i again i understand human emotion i can't even imagine what it must be like to stand and spend an entire day having conversations with folks whose homes have been bombed and destroyed, whose country uh, is under siege by a, a brutal dictator. Can't imagine what that's like. But if you're president of the United States, you have to do something else with those emotions and that moral outrage other than freelance assert, insert them into policy speeches cannot do that at least in my view no i'm with you I, I'm, I'm with you 100 and so we'll be praying like we said for for that clarity of mind concision of speech uh because it is needed right now in this moment the world is watching and america whether we like it or not is gonna have a hand in, in, in what happens over here we're gonna have some influence so hopefully we do better we'll be right back politics are you too progressive for conservatives 
and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, As many of you know, uh, our dear friend and and co-host uh, Christopher Butler is running for Congress in Illinois. Uh, I believe it's the is believe it's Illinois' first congressional district. He can correct me if I'm wrong. Presently held by uh, Bobby Rush. Um, now we know the we know the Ann campaign doesn't endorse. So we're not a, even even Chris. We love Chris, but we don't even endorse Chris. That's how serious we are about that. The Ann campaign doesn't endorse, but I do think it, it it'd be helpful for the audience, Chris. And they benefit just from hearing what a day in the life of a candidate is like. I kind of want to get into and get a feel for your routine, your outreach, what your your team is like, what you're seeing out there. Um, So first, first, tell us just so they understand what you're doing. Tell us about your platform and why you're running for Congress in, in Illinois. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what we do here on this podcast has a lot to do with why uh, I got into this uh, into this race. I mean, I I live uh, in this district, which uh, stretches from the south side of Chicago and takes up uh, a lot of the uh, suburban areas south of the city. Um, It's a a district that uh, has a lot of working class families, working class uh, black families, a lot of uh, working class uh, Catholic families down in the south of the district. And, you know, just looking around and seeing a political discourse that seemed to be moving away from the sort of day-to-day issues of life for working people, housing and health care, education, safety, uh, and, and really pursuing aggressively more of a culturally progressive agenda. Um, which is a departure from what most of the people in the district really care about. And so I, as I said to myself that we needed to recenter working families in, in this district and not be distracted by those, those other issues. And so I got into this race really in, in, in some respect to bring, uh, into the electoral arena the kind of conversation that we have in, in this podcast often. Uh, so, you know, that's our platform is, is really about working, uh, focusing on working families. You know, we're talking about rebalancing our economy. We're talking about reimagining our education system. Uh, we're talking about reviving our democracy and, and a recommitment to, to our, to our values. Uh, and that, so, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm doing. And we've been at it for about a year. What are your main issues? What's the platform, bro? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, when, we, when you think about the economy, we're, we're talking about, you know, strengthening labor unions, which has been a huge contributor over time to uh, the advancement of, of working people. Uh, we're talking about creating a regulatory environment and, and tax code uh, that favors not just large multinational corporations, but actually favors uh, the, the the small businesses, mom pop operations that really are the backbone of so many communities and really uh, the backbone of our larger economy. Uh, when we think about reimagining our education system, you know, I, I look at the education system as a place that's supposed to teach values to our children. It's supposed to 
unlock their genius and inspire their hearts. And I think that every family needs to have the tools available to them to access the best quality education uh, that they can get for their children. That means having robust public options in which parents are deeply involved, but that also means exploring charter schools, vouchers, tax credit programs, so that we have every opportunity to, to get the very best education for our kids. You know, on the public safety front, we're talking about, uh, you know, getting rid of this false distinction between supporting police and supporting uh, alternative policing strategies. Uh, it's not an either or proposition. You actually need both to restore safety uh, in communities like the ones that make up the first congressional district. And so th- those those are the big issues that, that we're talking about a lot. Yeah, no, that's good. I appreciate that. I just wanted you to dig into it just a little. Um, and I know you got the details. I just want to get some of them. Um, I. I I'm going to get into the day in the life, but I want to ask one more question. When it comes to the labor union issue, to me, it seems like there's a huge gap there uh, where you see the workers in many instances, their salaries aren't rising. You know what I mean? Inflation's going up. The salaries ain't going up. It, it seems like there's there's need for labor unions. How do we how do we think about that in, with the idea with the city? Sometimes like Chicago, people would say sometimes there was overreach by the labor unions that, that caused some issues. How, how do we balance maybe the need for workers to be represented better? Because I think there's a gap there. Man. I, I honestly do. With maybe instances that they may have overreached in the past. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So it's it's very important inside of the labor movement that the just like we're trying to do in the government, that the issues of the laborers are front and center. Uh, you know, one of the, the critiques that I have uh, for a lot of even our, our labor unions, I mean, I'm sitting here today working on questionnaires from labor unions, and many of them contain uh, questions that don't really have much bearing on the material condition of workers, uh, if I can put it that way. And so when the union is distracted uh, on those types of things, it makes for not the best situation for the workers. So we, we want the the focus of the conversation internal and external when we're talking about the economy to really be about what's going to impact the material situations for families on a on a day to day basis. You know, so that's very important. You know, but we, we also you know, I'm talking a lot on on the trail, Justin, about rebalancing our economy, right? And I think that unions are a, a big part of that. Um, but you also have to look to things like basic income, like investing in different ways in childcare. Uh, my, my guiding principle here is is really rooted in the concept that we have in the scripture that that God hates unjust weights, right? Um, and when you Try to translate that over to our economy. The, the weight is the tool of valuation, right? So, and, and God hates if we value things wrongly uh, in our economy. Uh, and so my wife, for instance, um, is an educated woman. She's a hardworking woman um, and, uh, you know, a, a contributing uh, person, a member of our household, but also of our society. Uh, but sh- so she is using right now her intelligence and her work ethic to uh, homeschool and to raise our five children. And right now our economy values that at zero. And I think that's unjust. Right now, our tax code seems to suggest that there is something more excellent about earning wealth through capital gains and investments than earning monies through hard work and, and wage earning. And I think that that is unjust. Uh, and so everything that we're talking about in terms of rebalancing our economy um, really has to do with how we can actually just value the the contribution of people justly uh, in our economy. Man, y- y'all just heard the, the 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 preacher and the the politician come out there. That was good. That was a word. I mean, you're right about what we value and rethinking what we value. I like that. Very quickly, not very quickly. You can take your time a little bit, but uh, tell us about the day a day in the life. What do you wake up and do? You know, what's your day like as somebody running uh, in an in an election? So, really, the only thing that I have control over anymore is my is my morning. Uh, so I do try to get up early, about four o'clock in the morning, and I spend some time with the Lord 
over a, a cup of coffee and, and try to get a workout. After that, you know, I try to, you know, sort of like get my uh, sort of daily brief, you know, look at some news issues in the campaign, check emails from, uh, you know, campaign staff and that type of thing. Uh, and then after that, it's it's off to the day, which, you know, from day to day can look very different. There's lots and lots of time spent uh, on the phone um, calling all the people who I know and asking them for money, uh, which is something that I think you got to get used to when you're doing this. Um, you know, a lot of time knocking on doors, uh, doing events, uh, you know, stuff sometimes that the campaign has planned. Other times we're doing other people's events. Um, you know, so that that is really the, the most of it. It's like it's events, it's meetings, it's knocking on doors, making phone calls either to voters or or asking for money. And, uh, you know, we're increasingly now that, you know, we're about 12 weeks out from primary day. So we're doing a lot more media now. So I'm finding that my days include a lot more, you know, radio shows and podcasts and uh, newspaper interviews, that type of thing. Good stuff. Well, Godspeed, brother. I appreciate you providing. I know a lot of folks who are listening, maybe one day want to run, just want to know what it what it's about, what it's like. And so we'll we'll do this from time to time to kind of follow our brother through through this. Certainly, we would ask you ask you for your prayers. And I'll just say this, as always, when it comes to the and campaign, we want you to be part of this movement. Uh, so you can go on our website. You can give. You can give to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. Hey, and folks who folks who are already part of our Patreon. Ask us some questions. We, we're going to start doing the premium uh, question and answer, and we want to get to that soon. So start asking us questions. What do you want to hear about? What do you want to know? We're going we're gonna to start answering those questions. But be a part of the movement. Uh, we're, we're trying to, like we said, we're trying to hold the line. We're trying to uh, create uh, really a place where, where Christians can be equipped for to engage politics, and we need you to do that. We're a body. We need to work together. So So join what we're trying to do. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You know how we do every time when we end one of these episodes. It's the same. It's the same conclusion. There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ankin. I say kingdom, come to me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.